This episode was recorded on April 17th, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Noah Gift. Based in Raleigh, North Carolina, Noah is the founder of Pragmatic AI Labs, an author who has published books with publishers including O'Reilly and Pearson on topics from AI and machine learning to Python and DevOps. He's also a lecturer for the Master's in Data Science program at Northwestern, for the MIDS Graduate Data Science program at Duke, and the Graduate Data Science program at Berkeley, as well as programs at UC Davis and UNC Charlotte. In addition to his work for many companies listeners will recognize from ABC to AT&T, he has also done technical work on some movies we're all familiar with, I'm sure, including Avatar and Superman Returns. You can follow him on Twitter at Noah Gift. You can check out his website at noahgift.com, his Pragmatic AI Labs YouTube channel, and the website for Pragmatic AI Labs at paiml.com. And finally, you can find links to his latest books and video courses on his profile page at leanpub.com slash u slash noahgift. Noah is the author or co-author of a number of LeanPub books and bundles, including Minimal, Minimal, including Minimal Python, Testing in Python, and Python Command Line Tools. In this interview, we're going to talk about Noah's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as both a conventionally published and as a self-published author. So thank you, Noah, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Happy to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Uh, You've got uh, a a diverse background, uh, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way to a career in tech. tech. Yeah, I I definitely have an an interesting non-conventional background. So I started uh, in Southern California. It's where I grew up, and my dad was in the television industry. So he was an editor for ABC Network News, um, Entertainment Tonight, I think 20 years. And so I could, you know, a lot of developers will talk about how they learned to program when they're a kid because their dad was a programmer or their mom was a programmer. But in my case, I was learning to do television because that's what my dad did. So I grew up, you know, doing mics and lighting and camera work and editing stuff. And it was an interesting perspective for me because I learned, I guess, how to work from a very young age, like 10, uh, you know, about 10 years old. I I think I was working with in my dad's company and then it culminated uh, by 18. I think I was working for ABC Network News myself as a freelancer and I would edit videos and, uh, you know, work with you know people in their 40s and 50s and patch live television in i edited stuff for um the oj simpson's trial and it definitely was a very good perspective for me to get a, a feel for what it's like to make money early also what what it's like to be self-sufficient and I, it kind of culminated i remember i was driving home from la one one day and i was like wow man i just made you know five hundred dollars today like that's a lot of money. You know, like it, it just it, it felt good. It was a good like feedback loop of you know to get paid early, and be, and basically to get paid based on things I had taught myself. Right. In in it, it was not you know they didn't teach you television production in high school, and there was a period actually where I briefly considered just doing that. And um and it, they, they they actually offered me a job to work full time. And it was, it's tempting because at 18, this is in 1993, that's a lot of money. $500 a day is a lot of money and uh, union job, all this stuff. And I just had this goal where I wanted to get a master's degree. It was just this kind of arbitrary goal because no, nobody in my family had actually gone to college. So it was, it was a, a kind of a bit of a goal. And so I turned them down and went to college. And I remember actually my dad 
telling me as he dropped me off in college, gave me a very anti-motivational speech. He was like, this is a very bad decision and you're going to regret it. And I don't approve of you going. <laughs> I just remember thinking, wow, that is, that's harsh. That's harsh. It, I think it ultimately did pay off because, uh, you know, I'm in the education space now. I see his point, you know, which was that, look, you already have a career. Why are you going to college? So then in college, I studied nutritional science. And the reason I did that was I've always been a decent athlete. And I had that was part of the reason, too, I wanted to go to college is I had just enough athletic talent that there's a few sports that I was good at, like track, um, football, basketball. And I would try to make a go of it doing the decathlon in college. And then, you know, I didn't actually make the team. I, I was a failed walk on. And that was also a good experience for me early to, you know, have this idea of myself where I was basically, uh, you know, invincible. I could do anything I wanted. I was a super athlete. I didn't really need to spend years perfecting really difficult techniques like javelin and, and pole vault. I could just do it. And it turns out you can't like, it doesn't matter how good you are <laughs> athletically, there's skill involved with things. So that was a really good humbling experience with me for me. And then when I graduated from college, uh, I then shifted gears and I mean, there was a, there was a brief period of time actually where I was trying training to, to play professional basketball. And it was an accident that, that I actually ended up working at Caltech. I kind of, I had these two different things. I had the, you know, uh, the, the athletic part of me. And then I had, I was interested in computers a lot of my friends in college were computer science majors and you know, I would, I would do, do some programming while I was in college, but it kind of as a, as a backup plan, I had applied to work in it at Caltech. And for some reason they, you know, gave me a job offer and then I had to make a decision. Do I want to, you know, basically bet on being a really bad basketball player who, who would make, you know, $20,000 a year or, or do, you know, work at Caltech. And so I decided to work at Caltech and then I spent several years there and that was actually when I learned Python, this was like 2000. And a lot of the people I was friends with were actually Python programmers. So I, I would play ultimate Frisbee at lunch. And a lot of the people w would also say, Hey, you need to, you need to program a Python and then I thought, oh, I better do this or they won't be friends with me. And that's, that's kind of how I picked up Python. So here's a, another skill where I, it wasn't something someone taught me. I learned it. And it turned out to be a great skill because when I left Caltech and went back into working uh, in the L.A. area, I started to work in live TV. Uh, in fact, Python was a big deal. So I, I got a, I worked in a lot of live TV scenarios like uh, Big Brother and, you know, Average Joe, all these kind of reality shows where I would put together these um, high-end editing systems and troubleshoot them. And they, they would run like 24-7. Like they're just constantly cranking out these these things. And then from there, I shifted to work at Disney Future Animation. So really, it was the combination of all these self-taught skills that I had, which was uh, Python, uh, TV production, uh, Unix, Linux, all the stuff that I didn't learn from traditional education got me that, that career. And then from there, I shifted into working at Sony Imageworks, and that was kind of fun because I, I got to play basketball at lunch with Adam Sandler, you know, like once a week. And it was definitely a, kind of a cool environment. And, and then from there, I kind of kept going 
and ultimately ended up uh, at uh, Weta Digital in New Zealand, working on the movie Avatar, which was which is really cool. It's a New Zealand's a great place. Lived there for a year. Also, a lot of Python, a lot of um, uh, you know dealing with big data. Uh, film is actually. Uh, my opinion is actually the first real big data uh, industry, maybe maybe petroleum. I think I've heard a lot of people say that as well. But but film, they've been they've had centralized file servers. We'll call it data lakes for a long time, and also render farms and which are basically you know spot instances on AWS, uh, and or the equivalent of that. So after I ended up spending a year there, you know, working at Weta, I decided to go back to the United States and then ended up in the Bay Area and then spent 10 years in the Bay Area, worked a little bit in film, but then mostly um, switched over to startups, uh, worked on games, mobile companies, software as a service companies, and ultimately ended up running a company uh, as a general manager for several years that was a sports social network. And there was a there was a definitely a period where we had a chance of going big. We were partnered with Bayern Munich, uh, which is one of the largest soccer clubs in the world. We had tons of famous people using our platform, like um, Brett Favre and uh, Tim McGraw, and all the like. It, it was definitely had a had a a period of time where it was a big deal. In fact, Facebook actually was really angry at us and threatened us, and, and that was definitely a good. That's a good sign, you know, when they're like they're they're angry at you and they want to take you out. Um, ultimately the company didn't work out. That was 2016. And then I shifted into doing consulting. So from like 2016 to, you know, currently I've, I've done a lot of consulting where I would work maybe at two, three companies at the same time, you know, either doing CTO level stuff or writing code. There's a lot to like about that. I actually like spending like one or two days in, in, maybe like building an entire company in three months where, where you don't have to really do anything but write code. It, it, is, it was actually very refreshing. And then it kind of around that same time, I accidentally got into teaching. I had a former professor that invited me to teach machine learning. I was also writing a book for Pearson at the time on the the um, uh, Pragmatic AI book. And then um, from there, I kind of shifted more and more into doing teaching and, 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 and lecturing. And then now I'm, I guess, in a way, kind of doing the consulting thing with teaching where I teach at all these different universities. I, you know, I th- what's interesting about education is that, it, you know, it has some, some strange things where they, they've, they've made everybody adjunct professors. But for me, as, as somebody that likes consulting, it's awesome. So I think many universities don't expect someone's like really excited to be an adjunct professor. But for me, it works out great because the, the feedback, I like the feedback loop. I, I think of it more like a startup. And so the universities and, and the students are my customers. And so I listen to what they, what they need. And then I create content. I create books around that. So for me, it works out really well. Thank you very much for sharing that great story. Um, there's, there's, we could spend a long time unpacking a lot of that, including uh, the, the uh, decision to be in, be in California when the World Wide Web was exploding and study nutrition. Um, uh, I've got to say one thing I really uh, empathized with in your story is uh, having a, uh, a parent who's unhappy with your university choice. Uh, I studied English literature, and uh, my, my mom was uh, directly unhappy in the same way that your dad was, and my dad was just like, I'm sorry to know that you're going to be poor. Um, uh, I, ended up, I ended up getting a doctorate in English literature and becoming an investment banker after that. So just for anyone listening, you know, 
Hank Paulson, the former Goldman Sachs CEO, studied English and, you know, Noah studied nutrition. So, you know, there's there's a lot of paths you can go down in life. And the choice you make when you're 18 doesn't necessarily lock you into a, a particular job. But um, I guess uh, sort of skipping sort of to the uh, third act, um, uh, you write in your book that you've got in progress on LeanPub, uh, Red, Yellow, Green. What, excuse me, Red, Yellow, Green, What Color Is Your Money? The Survival Manual for Gig Workers and Consultants that you, you actually um, made this decision to become more autonomous and independent very deliberately. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the actual story was there. Yeah. So, so you know, part of it is that having spent a lot of my time, my life working for other people, I did a little, little bit of consulting where there was a stretch uh, where I did do work for myself a bit. But one of the things I realized is that bet, betting on other people is not great because if if it turns out that they don't win or they don't do the right thing, <laughs> then you suffer. But if you're betting on yourself and you don't win, it's your fault. You know, it's it's really simple. And one of my friends is Olympic uh, high jumper, and we we talk about this. Is it you know what's great about track or the Olympics or you know is that look it's nobody's fault. He you know if, if you don't make it to the Olympics, it's your fault. Like that, that's it. It's real simple. And, and I, I think it's a good way to think about your career, even if you're not working for yourself, is 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 success something that is in my control or is it in the control of other people? And that was a big thing for me was to design things so that it was distributed so that I had multiple consulting clients, multiple forms of income, and that it's impossible for me to be fired. It's impossible for me to not be successful because there's many different things I'm doing intentionally that make it difficult, you know, to, to not be successful versus if you're just working for a company, it's possible. It's like rolling the dice. It's like, Hey, sure. If it, the, the, the dice rolls out, it, it could work out great. But I, I like the, the hundred percent strategy where there's a hundred percent chance you'll be successful, you know, by planning it out. So in the case of consulting in particular, what I like, you know, when I was purely doing consulting, I call that the yellow money. It's not it's not green. It's not the perfect scenario, but at least if you have three or four clients, if one of them doesn't pay you or turns out to be a, you know, a bad person or whatever problems come up or they go out of business, it's not a big deal. You have three other clients. And I, I think that's it today, especially as many people are laid off and there's all these things happening. Hopefully that's something that people think about is I can actually, this is a choice. I can design my life to to actually have um, diversification of my income, and and you can do it in a very simple way with consulting. And then the, ideally, if you do something like Lean Pub or you write books, you also can further diversify because you have this other asset that's paying you money. That's the green money while you're sleeping. So so really, the feedback loop can be really good where you're consulting. You're 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 actually getting sharper than you are at a, a single company because you're learning two or three or four things at the same time, and then if you take that knowledge and put it into a product like a self-published book, or a mainstream book, a video, you you actually have this great feedback loop where you're you're completely diversifying what you're you're doing, and you're protecting yourself. One thing you've written about that um really resonated with me was, and this is I think this is particularly true in the United States, but the hierarchy that comes from working for someone else, um, that you're essentially supposed to, um, compliment and, and please your, your boss, that this is a very important psychology. And they, I got to say like, you know, this is, it's not like that everywhere. 
uh, this idea that your boss is is supposed to it has the social right to adopt a mode of superiority towards you. But and at the same time, as you make that sacrifice to them, you sacrifice your career to them because the choices they make are going to determine your career. So you can work 100 hour weeks every every week for two years, sacrifice your family, sacrifice your holiday time and end up failing for no reason of your own. But also you can do all that and then summarily get fired uh, over Zoom uh, you know, <laughs> with no good explanation. Uh, and so, the, you know, there are all these sort of all these other factors that go into making this decision to become autonomous as well as as well as the sort of financial independence. Yeah. And I, I guess I, I hadn't really heard of Seth Godin. Is it Seth Godin? Is it how you pronounce his name? I I had maybe heard of him, but recently someone told me, hey, what you're saying sounds like some of the things he's saying. And then I looked at one of his videos and I realized that, yeah, I agree very strongly with some of the things he's saying. And one of them is this idea of obedience. <clears throat> Sure, don't be a troublemaker at your job and cause problems. I mean, that's obvious. But I think it's also good to not do what you're told. And I tell this to students as well. One of the things that that happens in companies, especially with technology, is someone, the boss, will tell you what you should learn and what you should study. And I think there's no worse thing you can do than to listen to what you should learn and what you should. And we're just talking about this with our degrees, the same thing. Really, you should have a passion for what it is that you want to learn and do it. And you'll, because you're passionate about it, it will work its way out. And it should be something that potentially is even opposite of what your company is doing. Let's say your company's a.NET company. Maybe you should be studying Python on the side. And, and maybe even your boss doesn't like it. That's even more reason to study it because you're already getting the opposite signal, which is someone's telling you how bad it is. Now get another signal so that you can actually learn something that's completely in a different a different realm than than what you're learning at your at your company. Yeah, and uh, one thing important thing to remember is that people who dispense advice like that uh, never follow up and don't care about what happens to you in the end anyway. There, it's not like they're going to apologize and try and make up for it if they were wrong. Uh, so yeah, you, you listen to what people say, but don't necessarily do, do what they say. Um, uh, and so you, you talked about, uh, university education, uh, and, um, the fact that you like being an adjunct lecturer. Um, I'm, I'm having a doctorate myself and having lots of friends who are professors. I'm, a, I'm somewhat aware of, of the issues here. And I wanted to take the opportunity to talk to you about this because, um, a number of things are changing, uh, in our time, uh, and, Things that have been changing, like, um, well, we can talk about remote work in a little bit, but remote learning have been uh, vastly accelerated by the COVID-19 emergency. Um, I should mention we're, we're recording this interview on Friday, April 17th, 2020, and lots of things may have changed by the time you've heard this. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of people from you know, elementary school to high school to university have gone to online teaching. And I guess I don't know if I have a very specific question to ask you about this, but what's your experience been with uh, online teaching in the last month? So, so it wasn't really a big deal for me or a big shift because of a couple reasons. One, coming from the software industry, the my experience has been I work extensively with global teams already, and uh, the teams were, you know, there would be people in South America, there are people in Eastern Europe, there's people in San Francisco. And in particular with software, especially one of the things I've enjoyed as an individual consultant. I mean, I had a hundred people that I had to manage at one point and, and 
it, what's nice about individual contribution is that you can really get things down to what are you producing, right? Like if, if I'm a consultant and I don't write software for somebody, that's bad, right? They're not going to be happy. They're not going to want me to do consulting. And I think with teaching the remote stuff, it really does get things into what's the artifact or what is, what's the thing you're producing. And it turns out that in some cases, maybe there wasn't something that was being produced and it, it's becoming, it, it shines a light on maybe an area. The courses that I've taught had really does been designed to be remote async first from the beginning. I, not, I was like, not like some genius and I picked up all this on my own. I definitely learned stuff from courses where I would, you know, there were, I learned a lot of stuff actually from Northwestern. And in fact, they, they taught me a lot about learning or teaching remote courses. The, one of the things that's interesting that I do is I encourage the students to do weekly demos. Every course I teach, like data engineering, capstone, um, you know, AI engineering, um, uh, cloud computing, whatever course I'm teaching, they, they have to create weekly artifacts of what they're doing. And the reason for this is so that they're creating a portfolio and they, and they're also learning to express their ideas. So, you know, uh, here's what I'm doing. I, I wrote a flask app and it, it's importing a JSON payload and then I do machine learning on it. And, and here's the result it's, and that is very different. I think than if you're in a classroom and, and you're giving a lecture, which is passive, and then two, that they give you the assignment, then the, and the students don't get to see it. So that's the other thing I do is all assignments and all projects are seen by everybody, and it's a discussion. So, so I think those are two relatively straightforward ways that I've seen massive changes in adoption of you know, or, or, or um, success is that you make it artifact based. So there's always something that's being produced, you know, written documentation, videos. And also that instead of me teaching, it's a distributed computing problem. All the students are nodes as well, and they're teaching. And so then people learn at, at a rate, I think that's, you know, a more of an exponential learning rate than, it, than uh, you know, just the teacher is telling you something and then you just absorb it and maybe you get 1% of it. You mentioned uh, async. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that what that means in the obviously asynchronous, but I mean, in the context of, of online education. Yeah. I mean, one of the things is that if you give someone weekly, just like in a software team, you know, if, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people that are listening to this are probably from a software team. You realize like, you know, it, it, generally it's pretty straightforward. You, you take a ticket off of a queue, you work on it. Maybe you have two or three tickets you work on in a week. That's async, right? That's an async workflow. You don't really need to talk to anybody. And then on Monday, hopefully you finish your tickets and you demo it. So it's the same concept, right? Is that the students are taking, you know, essentially tickets or they're, they're given a, a task to do that week. They work on it. If they did it on Monday or they did it on Thursday, it doesn't really matter. And then there is a sync. There's a sync that happens, but really everything can be done without a human being being there. And I think that's the part that's very different about some of the stuff I, I'm doing that, that I that I found to be very successful. I was wondering about your, I mean, um, I've got a couple of sort of COVID-19 ran, random kind of questions about your opinion. Um, uh, none of us are experts in the future uh, or even in the present. Um, 
But I did want to ask you about what you think might happen to university education going forward, because like I said, you know, the, this what, what, one of the ways of interpreting what's happening is an acceleration of changes or, or, or uh, pressures that were already there. And in particular, in the United States, university education had become incredibly expensive. There's a proliferation of, um, let's say, basically Trump universities. Um, uh, uh, and, um, but, but also at the same time, there's kind of the other, the other side of that coin is the really aggressive systemic celebration of people with brand name university degrees. Uh, so basically if somebody gives you a place at a certain university, when you're 17, you're kind of set for life because other people will, you know, pull you along the same path they were pulled along because they had the same... 17-year-old experience. Um, what do you think is going to happen to, to university education in the United States going forward? Do you think there will be a permanent change? Do you think we'll go back to the way things were six months ago? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I do think there will be a permanent change. And, you know, the things you brought up, I agree with. I mean, what, you know, if you look at the, this idea that there's an, a brand name university and because you went there, it means something, the world is getting savvier about data, right? And if you if you look at a signal, unfortunately, one of the signals for top universities is actually how rich your parents were. That's not a great signal. That that really is not a that's not a good look. And and I, I think if that's the only thing that a top university has got going for them, they, they they may have to fix that really quickly, right? And we and we see some examples of this, right? In you know the current environment, right? We have you know some of some you know the the current uh, presidential um, uh, office holder has people in his family who went to Harvard. And based on, I mean, this is all public knowledge. It looks like not merit-based, right? It was, it was more financial-based and they're making very important decisions about potentially life and death situations. And, you know, th that I don't think is great for the brand of a, of a top university. So there's that. Then, the, you know, in terms of the, the cost structure, you know, if you look at some of the things that have done, have been happening Especially, let's take, just take the UC system, University of California. You, the I think it's from the is it from the nineties until currently there was a period where things were were re relatively stable, and then the cost started growing like a, it's either linear or, or super linear. And if you dig into it, there was something I was reading about from UCLA that it's really the headcount, right? The you know, and it's the Parkinson's law is that the word for this, right, is that, you know, work expands to to fill the the people doing it or, you know, something like that. And so this this idea that the university administration's uh, salary plus the headcounts just constantly going to grow. And if you and if you look even at the UC uh, administration, I mean, they have people making triple, I think, what the president of the United States makes. So I don't think that's a sustainable structure. And then if you look at the um, housing crisis in California in particular, you know, it, it really because of other problems like, you know, property taxes don't go up. There's rigid, you know, all these other issues. Then you have the lower end of the spectrum. You have a TA who's get, trying to get a PhD and then they're getting paid 17 grand. And then the president of the university makes 750. That 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 whole structure seems like it's kind of kindling. And, and I think, and then if you look at who's coming into the university system, often the only people that will pay full 
uh, you know, pay the full tuition are people from outside of the United States. So it feels like, is that the core mission of something like University of California? Is it really to um, charge very expensive rates to people outside of the United States? Is that, you know, is it seems like maybe that's not, that should be something, but, but is that the entire mission of, let's say, the University of California? Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. I think I, I agree with most of what you said, um, uh, and I could talk about it forever. But um, just just one thing I should note for people listening who who um, never had the experience of being a graduate student, a TA is a, a, a teaching assistant, and that's somebody who is is studying at the university at the graduate level, either a master's or a PhD, and then they get paid to do a bit of teaching to to help them along and give them some some teaching experience. But um, yeah, I call I call the phenom- the phenomenon you're describing admin creep, uh, like mission creep, where it just kind of administration starting in I think the 80s just started growing and growing and growing um and uh one thing I'm I mean I don't want any it's never nice to think about people losing their jobs but at the same time it's never nice to think about 18 year olds going into debt to pay for you know someone's high paid position that's unnecessary and one thing I think that's going to be exposed as as people all are getting experience doing you know online learning now is how many positions at universities exist that really only exist for their own sake. Um, and it will be a, you know, there, yeah, as you say, kindling, uh, might be, might be exposed for, for what it is. Uh, and hopefully in the long run, that will be good for a lot of people. Um, similarly, uh, people are experiencing remote work now. Um, uh, many people who are, sorry, I should say many people are experiencing remote working who weren't before and are learning a lot about that. Um, just generally speaking, what are what are some of your thoughts on that on that subject? Yeah, I, I think that remote work. You know, I've definitely went through a period of time where I, uh, you know, having been a manager for a lot of my life as well, that there was a period of of my life where I was like, uh, you know, it, it's hard to know what someone's doing, right? If if, if they're at home, but having done both, you know, it managed people remote and then also done it as a consultant, where I, literally I'm paid whether I'm effective or not. It's really cutthroat, right? If you're, if somebody's hired paying you by the hour to write code, you better, you better be doing great work or they're, they're not going to pay you anymore. That I think the productivity level is off the charts, at least for me, for writing software, it's, I would say it could be close to 10 times more effective. It really could be because of the fact that if you, if you really know what you're supposed to do, like if you have a clear you know, list of things and it's, it's, you know, you're grabbing it from a queue. You don't have to, you know, talk about stuff, you know, like, Hey, how was your weekend? You know, all this stuff, it goes away. Not that it's not good to make friends with people that that's it, but, but that's a separate thing, right? Like people using the office to be friends with each other. That's, it's not, if you're, if we're really getting down to it, that's, that's actually impacting productivity too. The, um, a lot of the meetings that get called, you know, there's a lot of, you, you just said it, the admin bloat, it happens as well in organizations. And there's like three or four kind of, I call them like runners who are, who are just kind of running around and they're like, is it done yet? And really you don't have to deal with those people anymore because you're at home. (laughs) Right. It's like, and you can actually turn off Slack. You can turn off, you know, you can turn off, you have control over your, your productivity. So, I think that's one thing that many organizations, if they're managed correctly, and they're part of the problem is that as if you're, I'm more talking, I guess, about software teams, but 
if you're able to clearly give people tasks at the beginning of the week, really there should be very little interaction after that. I mean, maybe if two developers are working on a piece together, they need to have a quick Slack conversation or something. But really, you can you know you can kind of harness and, and even say, look, give me four hours of writing code every day. That's just sustained effort. And that might be five times or two times better than what you get in the office. My experience with you know, a lot of the stuff that happens in offices in the Bay Area or whatever, whatever location is, there's people yelling, you know, there's all these like people walking by, you can't concentrate, you have to wear like noise canceling headphones. It's really like the worst possible place to get anything done that's intellectual. So I think it's potentially uh, also kindling. <laughs> yeah, well, that, there's there's so many deep issues there. I mean, in particular, I mean, I'm totally with you on the productivity thing, and that's not just not just sort of programming, but all kinds of different jobs. I mean, just thinking about the amount of time thrown away in a person's day and sort of mental energy by commuting. Yeah, um, commuting. You know, like I remember uh, one time when I have, I've had a couple of office jobs in my life, and like if my if the two I was working in London, if the tube got delayed. The boss would, you know, you'd walk in and he'd be like tap, tap, tap on his watch. And it's like, it, what, you know, it wasn't, wasn't my fault, you know. Uh, what, but the thing is, like, those kinds of conventions always, always just struck – some people just take them for granted. For some reason, it, they always struck me as naturally absurd. Um, one thing that you see now, for example, with people getting used to working from home for the first time is, like, make sure to get up at the same time you used to go to work and, and put on your business clothes. And it's like the time you got up and the clothes you put on – never contributed anything to the quality of your work. I'm sorry to tell you. Um, and, uh, but, but those things actually often have been used as metrics for how valuable a person is. And so, for example, and, you know, to any, to any um, women listening to the podcast, you know, how you dress at work is really important for your career prospects, which, again, if you're, if you're the kind of person who's focused on what you're actually trying to get done, this is crazy. Um, and the idea that, you know, putting on a suit, a, a, a nicer suit than the, the next person uh, makes you more of a, a, a promotion prospect might be one of, might be something that we actually don't have to contend with in our in our working lives quite as much anymore or getting ahead because you've got a strong jaw and a proud bearing or something like that. Um, so, yeah, there's going to be a lot of really, really deep things that potentially that change. And one of the just just sort of just to finish. But um, one of the things I, I know you, you mentioned, I think, working for Sony uh, Entertainment earlier. And I think they were one of the first companies in L.A. before Gavin Newsom sort of announced the, the lock in uh, to tell people to work from home. And this is when you started to see these, I mean, to me, wonderful images of like clear skies in L.A. and and MP freeways and stuff like that. And the idea that people are going to go back to 7 a.m. gridlock you know, as they say on The Simpsons, you know, gas break honk, gas break honk, uh, and and not look around at each other and go, why the hell are we doing this? Just strikes me as quite unlikely. Well, and further to your point, the other one that's also a kind of a pet thing for me to throw rocks at is the the realistic the the unrealistic uh, explosion of um, speculation on real estate in California, right? Where it really it, it should a normal person be every day worried about 
how much their house is doubled or, you know, this is just a place you live. Right. And, and it's, you know, and the fact that you're forcing people in the case, I know so many people actually that work at the fan companies. Let's just look at just the fan companies that have told me they were in some other location and they're like, yeah, I want to go to the Bay area. And they're in they're at, let's say Google. And, and they're like, I can't afford it. You're at Google and you can't afford to go to the it's 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 completely, you know, like a, a ludicrous scenario where now I think the other thing is going to happen is it people realize that you can work remote. You're more productive. They're happier. They have more control of their lives. It, you know, it does require some self-discipline, some change. But if you can work literally anywhere why are you spending 50, 60, 70% of your salary on rent? Probably not a good idea. So with all that said, do you think that we're going to see the, the so-called, you know, V-based, V-shaped recovery uh, to in real estate, for example? Yeah, I, I've been looking a lot at real estate for many different, I mean, part of it, just writing a book, I was, it was a topic to, to write about, but anybody that lives in in particular, the Bay Area has, has been obsessed with real estate because of just how crazy it's been. If you look at the, um, you know, really since about, uh, I would say, you know, the 2000 to, to 2020, there's been this exponential uh, growth rate. And then there was the, the, the dip, obviously, in 2008, but then it, the exponential growth rate just accelerated even more. We know, right? Nothing exponential lasts forever. So forget even COVID nineteen. Things don't grow exponentially. Eventually, you run out of the things that are making the growth. Like if it's a bacteria, you know, it's it's whatever air or sugar or whatever. So I think part of the thing that is going to be a problem. Let's just take the Bay Area in particular. Is the the supply? So how many people? Are going to be able to afford a five, six, seven, eight thousand dollar a month rent, and then maybe for a little bit, people are okay with that. But then what happens is that someone wants to have a family, and then what happens is they have to go a little bit out, right? So then they go twenty miles out of the major, you know, city, and then it's good. now you're paying at least one or two thousand more, you know, and, and then it just things just kind of reach a tipping point where how many of those people exist. Where's your supply? So I already thought there was a problem, but now we've introduced this other issue, which is that you can work remote. So now the supply, I think, has a reason to go to another location. And if, I mean, honestly, if, if I was in the Bay Area right now and I was working for some other company and they said it's okay to work remote and I was renting a house for, let's say, 6K, right, or 5 or 6K, I would the first thing I'd be, I would be so focused on figuring out how to move to like Idaho or something. I would be, I mean, because you could be making five, 6,000, who can give themselves a five or $6,000 a month raise? <laughs> you can, the, 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 a mortgage of let's say $500,000 is still pretty expensive. That's like a $1,800, $1,900 a month payment. That's not, you couldn't even get, you'd, you'd be a roommate with somebody in the Bay Area. So the fact that now that's an option, I think if people have basic math skills, why would you do, why would you live somewhere where you're giving, you're literally just giving someone, you know, for no reason, $50,000 a year? 
Yeah, one of the one of the other um, dimensions of real estate that's going to be uh, affected potentially very dramatically is is commercial. Um, if if there is a, a shift to remote work, because um, so much of a, a sort of city's you know downtown core uh, is businesses that service people who commute in and out to the office all of the time. And um, actually, my my last foray to my city center here in in Victoria was about three weeks ago. Basically, long story short our national broadcaster decided to stop local news. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, I want to document what happens, what's happening right now in, in my city. And um, there, there were two saddest things that I saw. The second saddest thing I saw was uh, stores that were still open because you knew it was like, this is a very tourist centric um, uh, economy here. And you knew that these were like souvenir shops that are like, if I, if a, if a busload of German tourists doesn't show up in the next 10 minutes, you know, my store's closing anyway. So just people open desperately. But the, but the saddest thing was the coming soon signs, the opening soon signs, you know, opening in June, you know, new sandwich shop. And it's like, no, that's, I don't think that's going to be happening. And um, I think that, uh, yeah, all those sectors, of, every sector of real estate would be affected by, by remote work uh, becoming, becoming the norm. Well, and, and I, I think so. I don't think there will be uh, a V-based recovery for real estate. I already thought there was a problem in hot spots, and, and then, and then because of the you know the remote work alone, the commercial real estate alone. I mean, companies forget the employer, the employees in the company. The company themselves might go wait. Like you said, I, I know I know many CFOs, and, and I know a CFO recently that was texting me and he told me that he moved one of his locations they were paying i think eight hundred thousand dollars a month rent in the embarcadero of san francisco they moved it somewhere else they, they like cut it by like you know 20 percent. he's like yeah we saved all this money it's like well how many other companies are going to say wait a second six hundred thousand dollars a month is a lot of money that in fact maybe we don't need to spend any of it yeah, it's really it's really curious. Just before we just just signaling that we're going to move on to the next part of the interview in just a couple of minutes and talk about Noah's Noah's books. Uh, but um, one of the really interesting things I think for people in tech and like you and like me and like most of the listeners to this podcast is we don't we don't know uh, how some of the things that are very familiar to us are totally unknown to people outside our our sector. And so, for example, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a relatively prominent lawyer recently. He did his first online video meeting ever a couple of weeks ago because they've all started working from home. And this is with like, you know, um, uh, lawyers from all around the province and his clients and stuff like that. And what surprised him the most was that it worked uh, mm -hmm. because it works now. It's something that, that people like us have known for some time. And another friend of mine who's a, a neurosurgeon, um, they've been told for obvious reasons, you should try and really think hard about who you really need to meet in person. Uh, and so he's cut his in-person meetings dramatically and we've there, there's story this is here in canada but there's stories about how you know the national health service in the uk has made 10 years of telemedicine progress in just the last like 10 weeks kind of thing uh and it looks like people's people in these in these sort of people in all kinds of industries are learning and their bosses are learning and their their sort of cfos are learning that a lot of things that they thought couldn't be done remotely actually can be done remotely in, ad in addition to sort of straightforward work like coding or something like that but actually all of the meetings and even checkups and things like that. 
Well, and I would say related to this, the other thing I'm somewhat passionate about is this concept of externalities where, you know, I think there's a lot of good things that have happened in tech. You know, I'm happy for, for tech. I, you know, there's, I like in general, the big companies, but what, you know, one of the things that I take issue with a little bit is I remember there's an interview right before COVID-19 really hit with um, the leader of uh, Y Combinator, Paul Graham, who, who I really like, I really respect. But one of the things he said, I think that hopefully he would have a further explanation about is he said, I, I create income inequality, you know, and I'm basically proud of it. And I, I think if you look at some of the problems with this, you know, exponential growth rate in real estate, exponential growth rate in and, you know, traffic that there, people don't look at the secondary and tertiary effects of who's cooking your food. They live 50 miles away. What does that do to your freeway? Like it, things are not in isolation that it, the externalities of a lot of the tech growth have created some human suffering on actually a scale that's 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 almost at the worst scale of, of many other locations in the world. And if you look at the Bay area, you look at California, they have, you know, actually the, the top three States, California, Oregon, uh, Washington have four out of the 10 homeless, um, people in the United States. There's already a lot of homeless people. There should too many 500,000, but four out of 10 live there. What, what, are, what do those places do? They work in tech. So I think, I think a comment like that, I, hopefully that's not what he means that I, I do think that if we don't address something like that, you know, COVID-19 shows as well that just because someone's living on the streets doesn't mean they don't have an effect, right? They're, they're, they're actually part of the network. And if you let one part of the network decay and have problems, it's going to affect everybody. Yeah. I, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I've, uh, in a sort of former phase of my, career, I spent quite a bit of time traveling in the United States, and it was always particularly very striking going to San Francisco or Seattle and uh, encountering so many, so many homeless people in such prosperous, such nominally prosperous places. Moving on to the next part of the interview, uh, I'd like to talk about your books. Uh, so you've got a book that you uh, co-authored on LeanPub called Minimal, Minimal Python. Could you talk a little bit about what was the inspiration for that book and who it's for? Yeah, so I've gotten a lot of feedback from you know, data science organizations in particular, where there there's this, uh, I would call it more of like an elite way of teaching programming. And it, you know, and I, there's a place for it, right? There's, there's a, a lot of reasons to be elite about computer science and uh, C++ and algorithms and, you know, uh, design uh, of things. But there's also a place for just more of a carpentry approach to learning programming where I personally don't think it's any different to teach someone to build a chair or to write code in Python. And that's really the spirit of this is that it, there's a very different way to teach Python, which you can strip out, I would say 80% of it that you just don't need. So for example, you don't need to do object oriented programming at all. And I know that's very um, probably uh, what's the word um, controversial to many people, especially people that got masters in computer science and probably even upset about it. Like, of course you need to know that. I would say, I, I will debate you on this. You do not the, I teach students. I te they don't do object oriented programming, especially with cloud computing and machine learning. You just don't do it. You use functions. So I think that's really the spirit of it is 
could you teach people a subset, like 80% of, of, of computer science just goes away? Doesn't mean later they shouldn't study it or they won't study it. But if you reduce all that, can, can you actually reach people that would never, they felt like they could never be a programmer. That's kind of the spirit of the book is, 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 is stripping out parts that are unnecessary. And I've seen this in teaching data science students who traditionally have an English degree or they have a history degree or they're, they're coming from a liberal arts background that they want a way to learn to, to code. And, and this is really my attempt at doing that. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. It's uh, it's got a very bra- the book has a very bracing and brief introduction, which is you know very straightforward about about what it is, and you know exactly what you're going to be getting in the book, in the book from that, and the very deliberate uh, way that it has that it has a focus. So you mentioned that, so for that book, you're sort of stripping out things that aren't necessarily necessary uh, to learn, uh, but you've also got a book called um, Cloud Computing for Data Analysis that has the subtitle The Missing Semester of Data Science. So this is adding something that's typically left out, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is, a, this is I think, an artifact of, you know, we talked about education, and really with cloud computing is actually one of the most fascinating things right now in education. If you took a hundred universities, even right now, I would say ninety of a hundred probably don't have anything they're doing with cloud, even elite level. They may be doing a little bit, or or or, or I guess they don't have a comprehensive story. It, it may even be ninety-five out of hundred don't have a comprehensive story. And part of that's the artifact of the way the educational system works right now. You, obviously, the the Tenured uh, faculty, they're rewarded by the research they do. Very little research is focused on uh, current uh, technology, and cloud computing is a transist is a, a transformative technology. And really, in my opinion, it's what you have to use to do data science, machine learning. It, it, unless you're playing around with a toy, you're going to be doing something in the cloud. So that, that's part of the idea is that they're they're really is is very little um, education available that's directed towards the student who is you know needs to do cloud computing wants to learn cloud computing in fact maybe even they're in a data science program and they're doing scikit learn or something on their jupyter notebook and then they're like hey wait a second Uh, i interviewed for a job and they're telling me about redshift or they're telling me about you know kubernetes on gcp so the, the idea is just really to comprehensively cover every single cloud platform, AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. And I actually have friends at all those places, and I've been getting a lot of kind of inside information and putting into this book. But but that's the idea is that this is really a, almost like a Bible of if you're a data scientist, a machine learning person, you read this book from zero to the end this will bootstrap you and get you uh, going on the cloud. That reminds me, there was a question I actually forgot to ask you, but did you, did you, I think, I think you did, but did you study uh, computer science formally at university at any point in your I did not. You did not. Okay. I, I, I got a master's in information systems, which is definitely not computer science. Okay. The, the reason, the reason I ask is that I'm um, actually one, one of the questions that comes up uh, quite often on this or has come up quite often on this podcast over the years, because we at LeanPub, we see so many people from so many different backgrounds doing so many different things with so many career shifts is um, if you were starting out now, knowing that you would end up in a career in tech, 
would you want to take, and this is a loaded question given the context of this, yeah. this conversation, but would you want to, would you choose to take a four-year computer science degree? Yeah, and that's a good question. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. And I like, you know, sub parts of computer science uh, for sure. I, you know, I don't know. I, and I think part of it is that, I guess I have a health, even though, I mean, I teach at seven universities right now, I have a healthy disrespect for the hierarchy and, and like formality. And, and I even tell students this too, is it double check what I tell you, don't believe all of it. It may not be true. And, and I, I, I think the thing that I think that is pretty obvious to people that don't have computer science degrees is that we're not, this is not like, uh, the Holy grail. Like it is not like the secret golden key that we let 20 people into a computer science program each year. And those 20 people are blessed. And then they can read the the 10 commandments from the top of a mountain every day. Like, I, I think that concept is not a good concept and, and it's the, the elitism of a particular degree that's gated on exclusivity I, I just think the concept is not a good concept. So, so I, I'm not saying I wouldn't take it, but I think that that in itself has created a cascade of problems. And one of the other aspects of it is if you look at the, you know, you, you mentioned diversity earlier. Um, you know, if you, if you, if you, if your whole idea is I'm elite and I won't let you into my university in a way, what you're saying is that I don't believe in diversity. I mean, that, that, that like, no matter what you do and no matter how you phrase it, you're, you're basically saying that meritocracy kind of doesn't matter and that there's like only like a secret guild of people. And, and I think that's the part also about universities that like I hope goes away is that it, it's more of it, it's more inclusionary. And so that why couldn't? Any, I mean, I certainly have done pretty well, and every single thing I've learned, for the most part, I've picked up organically. You know, I, I don't know if that concept is a good concept of like, there's this one thing everybody has to do, and if you don't do it, you won't be successful. So, it, it may be that I guess the, the roundabout answer to your question, I kind of like that it, that I didn't go that way because it it, it made me. I guess who I am. Yeah, it's really, it's, that's, it's such an interesting topic that I think we could talk about for a long time. My, my personal uh, contribution to that kind of story is that um, I went to both a sort of no name and to a very big brand name university in my education. So I went to the university of Saskatchewan for my uh, undergraduate and uh, master's degrees. And then I went to the university of Oxford for my doctorate. And one thing I can say, and I went to one of the sort of like, I didn't know, I was so naive. I didn't know when I went there, but there's, there are colleges in Oxford and there's a, an internal hierarchy. And I ended up oh, wow. at, at the top of that. Um, and uh, it is very seductive to start to believe that you were destined for something like that to happen and to carry with you the confidence and self-congratulation that is made very easy for you to think about and indulge in when you attend institutions like that. Um, and I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's really hard to resist. And the thing is the, the thing is that like most of the world is built around reinforcing it. 
So for example, in my investment banking days, you know, when I was, when my picture was put in a slide deck for who's on the team, you know, they didn't put University of Saskatchewan on there. They put University of Oxford on there. And when a, a bunch of investors are looking at a slide deck for who's on their investment banking team, they want to, even if they didn't themselves go to any of these institutions, they, they just like seeing it. And it's like, I like to think I have a healthy disrespect for hierarchy myself, but I remember one day seeing a slide deck and someone said University of Saskatchewan. I'm like, what the fuck? Who would put that on a, on their, on their bio, <laughs> you know? And then, and then this is what I mean about it being seductive. Like you, you get, you get lost in the bullshit basically. No, it's a good, it's a very good thing you bring up. I, I, you know, I've seen this as well in, um, when I, I, I think I've been a pretty good manager in, in, in many parts of my career. There, I've also been bad at some point, you know, especially when things, when, when a company's failing, it's hard, it's easy to be a batter, a batter, a worse manager. And one of the things that's similar to what you're saying is that, you know, when I've had unchecked power, where it's like, basically, I literally make every single decision in the company that's also seductive. And it's like, oh, I must be right because I have all the power. So I must be able to do whatever I, I say, you know, oh, like, you know, this is the person that's hired. This is the person that's fired. Here's how much they should make. Or this is the the, just the, the direction the company should make. And it's very similar in, in that you, you believe that the things you're doing are the correct moves because you can do them. And so you believe your own, you know, bullshit. And it's, that's scary. It's a very, that, that's, I would say if I had to categorize one of the things I'm most afraid of ever happening to me is that I believe my own bullshit. That would be really, really troublesome. So, so, so it may be, it may like to your point, you know, it may be really, it's a dangerous game. And in fact, I've hired people from the number one university and then the one that was 25 miles away everyone's got different experiences. I've had much more success from the universities where they're 25 miles away, where they don't have a preconceived preconceived notion of how awesome they are. And they're just kind of like, Hey, what do you want me to do? Let's get to work. But coming, coming into a position where you're required to just do work and, and, and not like, you know, like extra work where I'm oppressive or anything, but just, Hey, look, here's a task. Can we all do it? If, the beginning of you starting it is I'm better than everybody. I'm smarter than everybody and I'm destined for greatness. That's not a, good, that's not a great environment to put that kind of person into. I mean, maybe, maybe you put that person into, I don't know, they become in charge of peace in the middle East or something like that. Maybe that's a better. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I mean, you know, I mean, it's so it's, it's actually, it's, it's so easy to digress, <laughs> but, um, uh, particularly at this current moment. But, you know, when we do look at the specter of Jared Kushner, you know, in, in a way, as as shocking, as shocking as it is, um, it's more or less a symbolic situation of how things ha have been. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Jared Kushners out there. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people who, um, you know, kind of just get on, get, they're at the front of the train the whole ride. You know, and they, they believe they're supposed to be there and nothing, there's nothing that can convince them of the contrary. And they're surrounded by an environment that's built to reinforce that belief in their position. Um, and this may be hopefully something that, that we're all uh, going to 
come out of with at least a better awareness of. Um, so machine learning <laughs> is something that you that you've written a book about. For I think that was the O'Reilly book that you that you recently published. Uh, and so while I've, while I've got you here for a few more minutes, um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. What are some of the things that you've seen uh, at a high level happening in, in sort of the machine learning space in the last couple of years that that you found most exciting to to write about and to engage in? Yeah, uh, one of the things I think that is a is really important and relevant to right now, and this is also what I teach at, at university level, is that if it's not in production, what is it doing? And if you look at COVID-19, one of the things that I'm upset about, I'm sure lots of people are upset about a lot of things, is that it isn't like we don't have the technology. We have the ability to do uh, binary classification of images. <laughs> we could be doing this. You could take, you could set up something where you have one image that's been labeled that has COVID-19 in the lungs, another one that doesn't. Again, I'm not a doctor. I, I have some I did take a year of anatomy and physiology, so I, I can probably speak to that. But we have the technology. But where is it? I, I know people that work at UCSF. I know doctors, in, in, and I've asked them about this, and they just they would do it. I think they would be they would be willing. The tools, that, in fact, you can do auto ML. You can click a button, and and they could upload those labeled images themselves, and then actually build something like this. It, it feels like. That's the shame, I guess, of right now is like we, we actually have the technology to build things that, that could really help uh, at a local level, you know, diagnose what's happening, triage people. And, and it, hopefully that's one of the outcomes. So, so that's basically one of the topics I talk about is how do you operationalize machine learning, get into production? Because really, and again, if you look at this crisis, hey, it's great that you have a Kaggle project. Meanwhile, people are dying in the streets. And we ha we actually could use what's in your Kaggle project to solve that. You know, how do we get there? And, and I and I hope this is a, is is a spurs people to think about how operationalizing machine learning. It, it isn't just a fun thing. It, it actually can really solve a lot of problems and 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 do the world a lot of good. So that's the, that's the spirit of what of, of what I wrote about. I, I wasn't obviously wasn't didn't know COVID nineteen what would happen. Yeah, it's uh, that's that's. I'm so glad you bring that up in the machine learning in that context. There, um, you know, conventionally the discourse I think for people who might just come across these concepts in the tech section of the news websites that they come across, you know, machine learning might might have seemed kind of obscure or something that the you mentioned Fang before, so the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google companies are using to try and you know manipulate you or take your job away or something like that. And while there's a lot of thought that ought to be devoted to those su subjects. I think a lot of people like, you know, I mean, I think one of the most popular websites right now is at Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, for people looking at COVID-19. And it's reminding people that, um, you know, the concepts like machine learning and things like that are, can actually have very practical, positive applications to the things we do in our lives and the way we manage various things in our society, including health. Yeah. And if, if, if people can focus on, so that's really the, the spirit, the, the, the title of the book is called Python for DevOps, although there's a heavy machine learning aspect of it. And in fact, I'm, I'm working on some DevOps for machine learning kind of concept, but the, the core concepts with DevOps and the core concept of machine learning, why they fit really well together is machine learning is a feedback loop, right? You put stuff in, you train it, 
you make a prediction about the future. DevOps is also like that. You, you have something, you do some work on it, you automatically deploy it somewhere. So those, those things fit really well in terms of DevOps and machine learning. In fact, the two trends, that's one of the things I'm trying to work on is how to merge those two things together. And hopefully, you know, I'll have some impact on, you know, at least the students I'm teaching are definitely doing this is getting things into production. In fact, the class that I just finished teaching at Duke, that is the final project is you need to have a group project. You get a machine learning model, you put it into production, you demo the, the project, it's working in production. So hopefully that, that, that will spread, but that's an important thing to do. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks very much for sharing all that. Um, they're, they're really good books. I recommend everybody read uh, all of them <laughs> if you get a chance. And particularly, we may have more time on our hands now than usual. But uh, And in particular, if you if you haven't programmed before, Minimal Python is an, is an excellent, excellent resource. So moving on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience uh, as an author. Uh, when did you start writing? I would say 2000 and probably five or six or so, uh, I started doing some technical posts where I got paid. So I was, I guess I've been a paid writer for about 15 years now. I, I was doing things for O'Reilly, Red Hat Magazine, which I don't think exists anymore, some tech publications. And what I discovered is it's actually a really good feedback loop to, in tech, you have to learn things every three months anyway. It's almost like you're an athlete, right? Where, you know, you can't just enter the NFL and do, you know, 225, which is, you know, two, two plates on each side, you know, 20 times, and then you just never do it again. And then you're that strong. It's like, it's not, that's not how it works. Same with tech. Like every, every three months or so, you should have some new skill that you learn. So if you're already doing that, why don't you just turn it into an article or a book and then get paid for it as well. Plus get notoriety, get people to recognize what you, what you've done. So that's something I've discovered you know, about 15 years ago. And that's where, how I got started. And then I, I pitched a book to O'Reilly called, um, Python for Unix and Linux systems administration. And, uh, that took me a year to write. And that was a good experience for me because I was really bad at, um, prioritizing my time as a writer. And it, I, I really stressed myself out, gained weight. I mean, I literally gained like 20 pounds oh, writing wow. the book. Because it, it, it was, it, I like didn't get sleep and I was like, for, I was like basically torturing myself and, and, and really I didn't need to. So that was one thing I learned and that might be some advice is writing the first book is that really instead of just torturing yourself, if you just do a little bit each week and, and actually intentionally try to be happy and take breaks and like a big thing I've learned as a writer is I try to walk outside. Like if I'm writing in the morning, if I'm writing for two or three hours, I'll try to go on a trail somewhere, look at the sun. And then I'll, I'll, the rest of what I need to write will write itself because I'm, I'm, I'm like experiencing, you know, nature. So I think that's a big part of it that I didn't realize the first time I wrote a book was that being, uh, making yourself happy makes writing a lot easier versus the opposite. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks very much for sharing that. Um, uh, this is one of the, one of the reasons I always look forward to this part of the interview when we go into the weeds and I know like a lot of our listeners drop off because they're not authors or not thinking about becoming authors, but sharing these experiences is really important because not only for people who haven't gone through it yet, but for people who have gone through it to know that other people out there have gone through something similar. And that, that first book 
can often be, I mean, is, is almost always a psychological roller coaster. Uh, and it can have an impact on people's bodies. It can have an impact on people's lives. It can have an impact on their relationships and things like that. And sort of having a, having a higher order awareness of what's going on and what you're doing to yourself uh, can be really important um, on the subject of getting into the weeds. So uh, one thing I actually always like to ask people about is it's, e it's sort of easy to gloss over what it means to pitch a book to O'Reilly when you've done it. Uh, but for mm -hmm. a lot of people, you know, who haven't, who've never done it, they're like, ah, like that's actually the, the, the gold here. What, what, what does it mean to, to pitch a book to a publisher? Yeah, so the idea with publisher, I guess I've done three books now that are mainstream books. Part of it is it's a it's a filter mechanism. So it may, maybe other people have realized this themselves that there's there's a story of um, the hen with the uh, the wheat. I don't know if you you know the story. It's like a Russian um, folktale, I think, where where um, a hen finds some wheat and then she's like. Who wants to help me grind the wheat? And then everybody on the farm is like, nope, busy. And then it's like, okay, who wants to help me make dough? And then everybody on the farm's like, oh, too busy. And then and then she bakes it. And it's like, who wants to help me eat the eat the bread? And then everyone's like, Yeah, I want to eat the bread. <laughs> it, so so it's kind of the same with like writing a book or doing something really hard, is there's no shortage of people that want to eat the bread, you know, and be like, oh yeah, like a, the, the idea of writing a book is like tremendous it's like oh i want to be an author but the the doing it is the part where th that that's where you really get to figure out whether someone has the self-discipline to do it and i don't think it's hard either I, I, it's just psychologically hard and so that's really i believe what the real part of the pitch process is to writing a book is that they know that that many people just won't follow through and create an outline so that's really the biggest thing to, to doing the, the proposal is can you actually create an outline? If you can't create an outline, you're not going to write a book. It's that simple. So I think that's the hardest part of it is it's a filter mechanism. Will you actually build out 10 chapters or 12 chapters with bullets in there and fill out this piece of paper? If you won't do that, you are 100% the person that says they'll write a book. They'll put a, a paragraph four months later Hey, so your first chapter is supposed to be done. What happened? And then they just don't do it. So I think that's really the hardest part. It's funny you're reminding me this is from a couple of hundred years ago, but the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge once wrote, you know, advice to young aspiring poets, which is, do you want to be, do you want to be a poet or do you want to write poetry? <laughs> and if you just want to be a poet, just don't write any and stop now and move on because it's the, it's the, it's the actual work that you have to do that has to be the thing that you want to do in order to become the thing you think you want to be. And it's not, it, there's never a point where you're like being the thing, like being an author. And, and there's a, there's a sense in which, you know, it's, it's always something, well, like you said about with, with respect to being an athlete, like it's something you always need to sustain and hold up. It's not something that you kind of achieve in, in the, in the sense that people often think you do in any, any way. Um, uh, and so, uh, so what you're saying is that, um, uh, you know, some, someone coming from a position of not knowing anything. So if you want to pitch a book to a publisher, you should actually have a, like a detailed outline that whether or not that's what the book ends up being, it demonstrates that you've really thought it through and it shows that you understand your subject. And do you then, did you, did you cold email them uh, with, with the full outline? The, 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 so the first book that I did, I did email them. And then they, 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 the standard response will be, give us an outline. And, and the, 
The second book I wrote, the one I wrote for Pearson, somebody approached me. And I think it's easier if you've written something like, for example, LeanPub, same thing. That's one of the advantages where I think there's a lot to like about LeanPub is that alone, that might be a reason you get someone to approach you. Someone may see that you're, you're doing the work. So you demonstrated the hardest part, which is will you do the work. And then they may approach you and say, hey, can you turn this into a proposal? Yeah, on that note, um, uh, what drew you to LeanPub for your latest book projects? Uh, so, so one of the ideas that I that I had was that um, I I do like lowering the ping pong uh, of um, you know the less people the better <laughs> if, if if you're productive and, and and so for me I like the fact that. I'm willing to pay for tools that save me time or, or, or make me productive. And I already know how to write a book. I've written books before. In fact, the last book we wrote for Riley, we did it in, um, believe it or not, we finished in, I think, six months, which is almost unheard of for a technical book. We had four people on it. I mean, it, it went as good as it possibly could go. But I know I can write. I've been writing for 15 years. I figure if there's a tool that will let me write a lot of things at the same time. And I like, I also like the concept of, you know, writing stuff intentionally. That's like a little bit sloppy, like, uh Oh, there's some spelling errors. Uh Oh, you know, like I didn't, I need to change this up that, and people expect that. I like it. Cause I feel like, I mean, right now I'm writing, I think five books simultaneously and I finished a couple we, the testing in Python book for in LeanPub, we did that in six weeks. Now, the guy I worked with on this, Alfredo um, Beza, he is definitely a special person. He was an Olympic high jumper, so he's not like a regular, you know, like random person. Like, this is a special kind of person. <laughs> like, people that go to the Olympics, they're, they're wired. They, that truly is somebody that's wired a different way. Like, he would, um, he told me when he was 12, he would have to run at the horse track in Peru by himself for, uh, you, you know, for years. So like his dad was at work, but he had to be at two o'clock after school got over, he would be doing like 800 repeats in the sand. It, like, well, who does that? Wow. Like, like, you know, his, his, his self-discipline is off the chart. So the fact working with somebody like that, if you can pick somebody that's a co-author that has very high self-discipline I mean, we, I think we did a great job and we wrote an entire book in six weeks and published it on LeanPub and published it on Amazon. So I think that's one of the, the, the scenarios where LeanPub really pays off is, is, you know, like you said, there's the being the poet and there's writing the poetry where if you really want to write something and you really want to get right down to it, you can write a book in six weeks and publish it. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting you mentioned that. Um, and thanks for sharing the story about your co-author. That's that's just a fantastic image. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, the the um, one thing we've learned over the years, in particular, because so many LeanPub books are about you know evolving technologies, but they're also like written for people who need to learn something. Um, when you say sloppiness, I think a lot of people might think might confuse that with kind of laziness or poorly written or something like that. And that's not what that's not what you're talking about. It's it's like some of the polish, like, you know, the 80-20 rule, right? Like a lot of the polish that goes into a book can delay its publication, which delays the time that it gets to, to the person who might really need it. 
And so in the same way that I think we're all learning with the popularity of podcasts now that the odd kid running in the background or the odd, the odd dog barking uh, can actually add a little bit of charm to it. And the same, the same goes for video calls and the same goes for, for books. Um, that if, if, if it's a good conversation, um, if it's uh, giving you something that you need or that's useful, um, polish it in the end, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, to anyone out there thinking about writing a book, you know, don't don't let the polish get in the way of getting it out there, because I can almost guarantee you there's someone out there. If you're writing something useful, there's someone out there who needs it, who will be just as happy to see a little grammatical error and let you know about it. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be just just as happy to get the book and see that error or happier to get the book and see that area than would to not get the book at all. Um so yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. That's that's a- well, and 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 one last thing to add to that is that I even will say this to students is that you should focus on output and in even think about intention. Whenever I find that someone's stuck on something, I say focus on making something intentionally bad, like make it bad. So just make like, and it's it's more it's a mind way of thinking. It's not. They, they they won't necessarily make something that's garbage, but but it kind of gets you thinking like, oh, it's okay, I can make something that's garbage. And it turns out that most people will be embarrassed by garbage. So then you'll kind of clean it up and you'll make it a little bit better. But if if you just take all the pressure off, because I think a lot of people why they're stuck is they they get stuck on oh it's it, I need to be perfect. But if you put the right you know glasses on, the glasses are no, I'm going to make something bad. That's my, what I'm doing. I'm making something bad. I'm going to make it better immediately afterwards, but I'm going to make something bad. That's like a nice little mind hack that will just get you get you going if you're stuck. Yeah, that's I, I've got to say, I've heard that that put not quite so well before, but that's something that I think a lot of writers talk about, particularly journalists who have to have sort of high output, which is like, just type some words, just sit down and type some words. Um, and, uh, and you know what, yeah, you'll, you'll improve them and it'll get better. You might throw them away and start over, uh, but not putting on the, the pressure on yourself to be perfect from, you know, the moment of creation is a really, really good, yeah, as you say, mind hack for, for getting going. So, uh, the last question I always like to ask people on this podcast, if they're lean pup authors is if there was one thing you could ask us to do to either, to either build or fix for you, uh, what would you ask us to do? I think there's a pretty big opportunity in the the course uh, space. So I know that you have a little bit going on there, and I'm, I'd probably be interested in doing something there. It feels like so. One of the things that I I think is great about LeanPub is the self service aspect of it. So if you look at platforms, there's things like O'Reilly, which is kind of curated, right? Is it you? There's a there's a gatekeeper. The gatekeepers stopping you you have to ask them hey can i do this thing and and you know i guess there's some benefits to that and then if you look at platforms like udemy like which is more like kind of course creation you know anybody can create something on there i think that that there for what you do you have this unique space and that you make it really easy to um, publish something to Amazon, I would be curious if you also could make it easy for someone to, to basically have one product and, and create many different versions of that product. So it could be a book, it could be a video, it could be a course, it could be a certification, like it could maybe be interactive lab. 
I think that's the the holy grail is that there's so many, and I, and I work with a lot of these companies. I'm on the instructor advisory board with DataCamp. Uh, you know, I've worked with O'Reilly. I've worked with Pearson. You know, I've done stuff with Udemy. I've tried all, I've done stuff with Udacity. I'm doing stuff with Coursera. I, I think if the dream scenario is, is that you, you create one thing and it can be distributed to tons of different channels. So, Maybe, maybe for example, um, if it was easy to uh, automatically create something that got published to YouTube, or you know, maybe include live streaming. But just the the I'll call it the lazy part of me is what I like to do is create once and then produce many, right? So I, I think something in that spirit where where you let people create it, you publish it to many different channels would be awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing that. Um, we've been we have been thinking about things along those lines to some extent. And how can you, from one sort of source of content, create multiple products that are useful to people in in different ways? And so you mentioned you mentioned courses. So we have an online courses platform. We're, we're in addition to eBooks, we're also an online courses platform. Um, and so you can use LeanPub to create. Actually, like we've got, it's very complex. This was made in, in association with a team at a, you know, a brand of data scientists at a brand name university who like had really high standards for all kinds of things and lots of really interesting features that they needed. And uh, so it's very robust. Um, and uh, the there's a sort of deep correspondence to what you're talking about there, which is that the way Markua, which is our sort of markdown dialect works from a single source document, you can click a button and create a book and a course. Um, you just indicate which parts you want in the book and which parts you want in the course. And this creates a course online that people can take. And you can also, you don't need a book. You can also just create a course in itself, but it creates a course that where someone can get a certification and by completing it and they get a, they get a grade. If you, it can be pass fail or it can be, you know, a numbered grade or something like that. But one of the things that we're really trying to see if, I mean, we're, we're testing out with authors is if you've written uh, a prescription non non-fiction prescriptive non-fiction book which is what most lean pub books are where like like your you know minimal python and stuff like that um when a person reads a book they don't have any proof that they've done mm -hmm. it um and so one of the things we're trying to encourage lean pub authors to do is like if you've gone to the trouble of creating an awesome book that teaches people something create a companion course and that's that's good for you because it's maybe some extra revenue but it's good for the student because after they take the or the reader because after they read the book they can then take your course and then get a certificate that they can show uh uh one way or another saying hey look look I actually did read it and I actually did learn learn something from this I know how to you know code minimal python now um and so that's definitely something that we've had in mind there's something else called um there's a concept of a project uh, where um, you can sort of take what you do is you direct a student towards um, multiple ebooks and online courses and video trainings and things like that and um, give them a specific piece of output that, mm -hmm. you, that you want from that. So a project, but you, but you tell them, you give them all these different resources, you know, obviously at a discount when you buy them, buy them all together. Uh, but, but yeah, and what really, one thing that really struck me from this interview was when you talked about having artifacts um, that's something that we've been kind of, we've been, I can't say we've been pushing it, but we've been pulled in that direction by people because like, like, I, like, like you're saying, it's very powerful to have something to show, uh, to potential employers and things like that. When you're done, there's the sense of accomplishment that you get and things like that. And so definitely this is something where we're like, yeah, we're being, we're being pulled in exactly the way, you know, you're, you're pulling us right now, uh, in that direction. And it's definitely something we're thinking about. 
well, uh, Noah, thank you very much for taking some time out of your out of your day to to talk to us on the podcast. I'm, uh, we covered a lot of ground, which is always my favorite my favorite kind of interview. Um, and yeah, thank you very much for uh, writing your books and for being a Lean Pub author. Yeah, thank you very much. It was great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.